0: great to be here this morning and to be able to share with you in this service and from the Word of God. And as uh, Roger indicated, I'm going to read you from Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 16 down to chapter 4 and verse 2, which is about six verses altogether. I know you use the uh, ESV, most of you. I was told that, but I have an ESV. I pulled it off the shelf, and I was going to bring it, and I forgot it. So I'm going to read from the NIV, which is the uh, nearly indispensable version uh, that uh, I use. Same thing, really, just this has better language. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse 16, he asked the question, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, I heard a story one day of a man who was out of work and uh, he was trying desperately hard to find a job and nothing seemed to be suitable for him, every week he go into the, uh, what do we call it here, the, the labor exchange office and uh, look up the various vacancies and none of them seemed to work and one day he went into the uh, labor exchange office and they said to him, hey, we've been waiting for you, come over here and sit down. And he sat down and he said, uh, down at the local zoo, the monkey has died and they can't get a replacement. So they've asked us to find somebody who would dress up in a monkey suit and just act like a monkey until they can get the real thing. And as soon as we heard the job, we thought of you. (laughs) You've got the right kind of physique, your knees bend in the right places and uh, the right shaped chin. And so it sounded interested, so interesting, so he, he took it on, went down to the zoo, dressed up in his monkey suit, learned to scratch himself in the right places, went behind the bars, ate bananas, flicked peanuts, caught them in midair, and uh, people walking by thought he was the real thing. One thing that really fascinated him was the bar suspended from the center of the cage, and he learned to leap up onto his bars. the real monkey used to and swing backwards and forwards, and then he learned to hold on with one hand and swing back with one hand and then go and catch with the other hand, And people coming by thought, this is a very athletic little monkey. And then he got really smart, and he learned on the upward swing to let go with both hands, do a somersault, catch the bar with his knees, swing back upside down, do another somersault, catch the bar with his hands again. And he was extremely impressive. And uh, one day, he was doing this, and on the upward swing, he let go to catch the bar with his knees, with his legs, and he missed. And he got uh, thrown right out of the cage and landed two cages away, in the cage of the lion. And when he landed, the lion let out an almighty roar, and this poor little monkey man didn't know what else to do. And he backed into the corner as the lion got up and slowly began to walk towards him, and he was just about to let out an almighty scream for help when he heard the lion say, Shut up! Or we'll both get fired. (laughs) (laughs) Now... I I tell you that for a couple of reasons. One, because I thought it was funny and I wanted to check your sense of humor. Uh, So that's good so far. (laughs) But uh, second reason is because there are a lot of folks who think being a Christian is a bit like that. Where you put on a Christian suit and you act a Christian, you scratch your Christian itches and eat your Christian bananas and do your Christian flips and eat your Christian peanuts and so on. But it's not really something that works some on Monday morning, it's just something you put on on a Sunday. I've met folks outside who would say to me, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to become another hypocrite, which is very good news, I always tell them that. <laughs> We've got enough, I know. We don't need any more, so don't do that. But my bigger concern here this morning is that many Christians who've discovered their Christian experience has become a little bit like that. We find ourselves coming into a company like this this morning and we know the culture, we know the lingo, we know the way we behave and we do it well. Big smiles, good handshake, how are you doing brother. But Monday morning it's not working. Or we go home at the end of this service. And in your marriage, you know this isn't working. In your family life, it isn't working. Some of you young people, you go back to school, you go back to college, and you know that what you believe, and you really believe it here on a Sunday morning, doesn't work on a Monday morning. If you recognize that in yourself, you're actually in very good company. Because that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews describes when in verse 2, he says, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. Now, the they in the context are the children of Israel on their journey out of Egypt and into Canaan and through the wilderness. That's the, the passage that he's speaking about. But he's not just giving them a bit of a history lesson. He said, I'm talking about you on the basis of this history lesson. For we have the gospel preached to us just as they did. They had good news, we have good news. But the message they heard was of no value to them. It didn't do them any good. And here's why. Because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Because truth in itself never does you any good. In itself. Unless that truth is combined with faith, he says. One translation says, mixed with faith. Where you churn it up, where truth is mixed and combined with faith. And what he's talking about here are the Israelites in their journey out of Egypt, where God had wonderfully delivered them, you remember, from their bondage. And... Uh, God had sent plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and uh, they'd only served to harden Pharaoh's heart until the final, most awful plague, which was the night when every firstborn Egyptian son died in his bed. Not only that, the firstborn Egyptian calf died in its stall. The firstborn Egyptian lamb died out in the field. The firstborn Egyptian Cat was dead in the morning. Firstborn Egyptian puppy. Dead when they got up the next morning. But the Israelites that night didn't go to bed. They took a lamb, you remember, and they slew the lamb. And they marked the doorposts of all their homes with the blood of the lamb. And they took the meat of the lamb and they roasted it. It says, with their coats on their back, their belts around their waist, their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand, they ate the meat of the lamb, ready to run in the strength of the lamb. The moment the word came, you're free. Because that morning at cracker dawn, Pharaoh said, get out of here as quickly as you can. And it's a beautiful foreshadowing, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist introduced him to the world, he did it this way. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. And every Jew listening to John that day knew exactly what he was talking about. Because every year they then, and they still do today, reenact the Passover. Where it is the blood of the lamb that marked off the people of God from the angel of death that visited every unmarked home in Egypt that night. So they'd experience what we would call being born again. They have been brought out of their bondage, and it's a picture in Scripture coming out of Egypt, is coming out of sin. Uh, that's why this uh, story of the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going to Canaan is the most repeated and referred to story in the whole of Scripture, because it is a beautiful picture of what it means to be brought out of our bondage and slavery to sin through the blood of the Lamb, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But having come out of their sin... Having a testimony, if you like, to being born again. They were left with a gospel that didn't do them any good. It didn't work. It left them in the wilderness for 40 years. It was an 11-day journey to go from Egypt to Canaan. It tells us that in Deuteronomy, 11 days. I've done that journey on a bus. It took less than 11 hours. That was with a five-hour stop at the Israeli border. <laughs> It took them 40 years, went round in circles. Why? Because although they trusted God to bring them out, they did not trust God to take them in to the new land. And they were left in the wilderness with a gospel that was of no value to them. Now, the reason why Paul, uh, the writer of the Hebrews, sorry, I'm not suggesting it was Paul, but the reason why the writer of the Hebrews talks about this is because he's concerned with the folks he's writing to. And if you read through the whole context, he keeps saying about you, you, you. And we're not going to read through the whole context, but or, or about us. And here he says, as they had the gospel preached to them, as we have had the gospel preached to us, be very careful that the gospel you have received is not a gospel that does you no good. Because he says, what turns truth into experience is when it is combined with faith. Let me talk about that this morning. I think the word faith is probably one of the most misunderstood words in our Christian vocabulary. We know the New Testament is full of it. It tells us, for instance, we are cleansed by faith, we're justified by faith, we're saved by faith. In other words, if you're going to become a Christian, it is on the basis of faith, whatever that is. But having become a Christian by faith, we are then to walk by faith, it tells us in the New Testament, to live by faith. We are sanctified by faith. We take the shield of faith. We overcome the world by faith. We ask in faith. We have access to God by faith. We draw near in full assurance of faith. All these are quotations from the New Testament. In other words, having become a Christian by faith, the only way that we can be the Christian we have become is by faith. Click extent, Hebrews 11.6 says without faith it is impossible to please God. And Romans 14.23 says whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. That tells me two things about faith. One, faith is important. <laughs> the whole of Christian life operates on the basis of faith. Second, it tells me this. If I have a Christian and it doesn't work, in all likelihood it is because of my failure to exercise faith. So what is faith? Let me define it first by saying what it isn't. Some people have the idea that faith is some kind of mystical power where if you close your eyes and really, really, really believe something strongly enough, you're believing it will actually make it happen. I remember speaking some time ago in England, which is where I come from, and uh, I was speaking at a conference in the north of England one summer, and uh, we were all staying in one building in the conference hall where we had our meetings with another building. And it was a typical English summer's day, and it was raining. And uh, I was running down to the conference hall uh, to avoid getting wet, and I caught up with a man and his wife walking under a large umbrella, sort of a golf umbrella, and I said, do you mind if I walk under your umbrella with you? And they said, no, not at all. So, simply as a conversation piece, I said, it's going to be a miserable day today, isn't it? And the lady turned to me and said, don't say that. I said, why not? She said, you should say it's going to be a beautiful day today. I said, but it isn't. (laughs) It's going to be a miserable day. It's raining now. It's been raining all night. The forecast is it'll rain all day, if not all week. Possibly all month. (laughs) It could be all year. She said, but you should say it's going to be a beautiful day. You should say the clouds are going to blow away. You should say the sun is going to come out and we're all going to get a suntan. I said, why? She said, that's faith. That isn't faith. That's actually foolishness. That's stupidity. (laughs) You can stand the rainstorm, believe what you like, and the rain will take absolutely no notice of you. I meet Christians almost having nervous breakdowns trying to believe things into being on the thought that is what faith is. Other folks have the idea, faith is a substitute for facts. As long as you've got your facts, you're okay. But get to the end of your facts, uh uh-oh, it's where you need faith. And faith is sort of leaping into the dark. And uh, if it's true, you're going to be okay. If you're not, you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) And that when you're under facts, that's where you need faith. But that is not true, of course, because faith... Faith is not a substitute for facts. Facts are necessary for the exercise of faith for the simple reason. Faith has to be in something. Faith has to have an object. You can't just have faith. It has to be in something. It's like love. You can't just have love. If you met a 16-year-old girl who was off her of food, and giddy, and her knees were knocking, and you said, uh, Excuse me, w- w- you're right. I said, no, no, what's wrong with you? I'm in love. Really? Who are you in love with? Nobody, I'm just in love. Can you just be in love? Of course you can't. Love has to have an object. It might be a cat, or it might be a car, it might be a person. <laughs> and the all important thing about your love is, of course, the object that you love. Similarly, faith does not exist other than in relationship to an object. Faith has to be in something, and it is the object in which you put our faith that determines the validity of our faith. Let me illustrate this. Just suppose I put a lot of faith in some thin ice. With all the faith in the world, I step onto the thin ice, what is going to happen? I'm going to sink by faith. What was my problem? Was it my faith or was it the ice? Well, of course, it was the ice. All the faith in the world won't make up for thin ice. On the other hand, if I put a little bit of faith in some thick ice, and very nervously, with a rope tied around the nearest tree, and a life belt around my waist, having written a note to my wife to say, if I don't come back, I'll be under the ice. It's been lovely knowing you. (laughs) And I very nervously step onto the thick ice. What's going to happen? I'm going to walk on the ice. Why? Because I had more faith? No. I had less faith. But because the object in which I put my faith, the ice, is stronger. And faith is a disposition of trust in an object for the purpose of allowing that object to work on my behalf. You're exercising faith right now on the seat in which you're sitting. You know these seats are pretty sturdy, and uh, you've probably sat on them before, and at the end of the, the, the time of worship, you allowed your body to crashing down uh, without having to check it, because you just put your face in the seat, and you sat on the seat, and right now most of you are this shape, and what's holding you in that position is the seat in which you put your face. You sat as an act of faith, but what's holding you there is not your face, but the seat in which you put your face. Does that make sense? If not, do an experiment at the end of the service. When nobody's looking, make sure everybody's gone. Take away the chair and sit on your face. <laughs> and you'll discover your faith is totally useless. Unless it's placed in an object for the purpose of allowing the object to do something for you. You put faith in an aircraft, you let the aircraft do something for you. You don't sit there flapping anything, you just let the aircraft do something for you. You rest, which is a word used in this passage... It remains a rest for the people of God. You put your, 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 your trust in, in the aircraft and you can put your head against the window and go to sleep if you like. Your aircraft's going to carry you. You put your faith in God, you let God do something. Faith in God is not expressed in what I do for God. Faith in God is expressed in the measure to which I'm allowing God to do things in me and through me. And uh, we know this is how we become a Christian, because we know we're saved by faith. We come to the point of saying, Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing I can do to change myself, to get rid of my guilt, to, to change the way I live my life. But I want to thank you that you died for me in order to cover my guilt, and you can forgive me on the basis of your death, and you were buried, and you rose again to impart your resurrection life to me, that you might come now and live in me and enable me now to be a new person with that gift of eternal life. And that's how he became a Christian, as an act of faith. We all know that. That's ABC of the gospel. But what we do not equally know is that having been saved by faith, we equally are to live by faith. Now, unfortunately, that's become a technical term uh, amongst many of us for what missionaries do who don't get paid. (laughs) We say they live by faith. Somebody asked me one day, do you live by faith? I said, uh, yes, to you? He said, no, no, I've got a job. Oh. I said, I didn't ask you about your job, I asked you about your faith. He said, no, no, I asked you first. And when I said you live by faith, what I meant was, do you get paid for what you do or don't you? And I said, that isn't living by faith. He said, nothing to do with living by faith. It may be purely incidentally that God calls you to something where you don't get a salary. But living by faith is not your attitude to money. Living by faith is your attitude towards God. And God. If you're not living by faith, you're living in sin. Because if you're not living in dependence on God, you're living in independence of God. That's why whatever is not of faith is sin. And the scripture repeatedly warns us about this danger. This is one passage. But in Galatians chapter 1, let me read you what Paul wrote there. Galatians chapter 1 and verse uh, 1. He said uh, to the Galatians, You foolish Galatians which wasn't a very nice way to write to them, but anyway, he did. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, you're screwed up somewhere. (laughs) Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Here's his question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? What's the answer to that question? Do you receive the Spirit by observing the law, by keeping the rules, or do you believe you receive the Spirit by believing by faith? We just have some audience participation here. If you receive the Spirit by keeping the rules, put your hand up. Nobody, unless you're all a bit shy. If you receive the Spirit by faith, put your hand up. That looks like most of you. Well done. Good. Well, they knew the answer to this. Paul had just told them, actually, in the previous chapter. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. So he asked them a question. He's just told them, so he knows they already know the answer to this question. But then he says this. Are you so foolish, then? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Do you see the Spirit by works or by faith? The answer is by faith. He says, then, you foolish He called them that twice. (laughs) By the way, the Bible doesn't call many people fools. The man who says there is no God is a fool. The man who says I'll knock down my barns and build bigger and take no concern about the eternal nature of my life. That man is a fool, it tells us. And this is the third person who's a fool in Scripture. The Christian who says I receive the Spirit by faith, but now I promise God I'm going to live for him. By myself. You foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Let me give you an example of that, which uh, again in Galatians, Paul gives an example of, which is uh, Abraham. Most of you know the story of Abraham. Of course, God called him from a place called Ur the Chaldees to go to Canaan. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do when we get there. But you get there first, and I'll tell you what my plan is. So Abraham went off, not knowing where he was going. He got to Canaan. And uh, he came from Ur the Chaldees, which is in present-day Iraq. And when he got there, God said, look up at this one night. Look up at the stars. Look at the sky. How many stars can you see? Doesn't tell us Abraham's answer, but he probably said lots. How many grains of sand are there along the seashore? Lots and lots. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and from that son will come a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky, and from that nation will come a seed who will bless the world, which of course was Christ. Now, Abraham was 75 years of age at this stage, his wife was 65 years of age. He'd been married for donkey's years, and they had no children not because of want of trying, but it says that she was barren. Now at 75-year-old with a 65-year-old wife at home, God says you're going to have a son from that son of a nation. It means a blessing the world. And it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, when he says he believed God, he said, God, you said this. This is your idea, not mine. You said it. You do it. Thank you. I trust you. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that was the spiritual part, if you like. Then Abraham had to do something about the practical part. He had to go home and tell his wife. Because God told Abraham, didn't tell Sarah. And the Bible's not complimentary about Abraham. It says about him twice that he as good as dead. So he wasn't a healthy 75-year-old. He was as good as dead. And it says about his wife that she was worn out. <laughs> I don't know why, because she had no children, but maybe <laughs> had too much potato picking or something. <laughs> and uh, long past the menopause anyway, and it also says in Romans that she, her womb was as good as, was also dead. So here's Abraham, as good as dead, coming home to Sarah, who's worn out, probably lying on the beanbag, and I can imagine what the conversation must have been like. <laughs> Sarah? <laughs> yes God spoke to me today and what did he say he's going to give us something well what's he going to give us you'll never guess <laughs> begins with B another bean bag no not another bean bag he's going to give us a baby and remarkably she believed him I don't think my wife would believe me in similar circumstances <laughs> She at least wanted a second opinion but she believed him st- probably started knitting and painting the room whatever ladies do when they get this kind of information and waited six months went by how are you feeling Sarah? alright nine months went by nothing happening? no two years went by you're not feeling a bit funny in the mornings? no you're not getting sick? no you're not eating strange combinations like onions and bananas at the same time? no Putting our weight at all? No. Three months, five years, three years, five years, eight years, ten years went by. Abraham is now 85, presumably even deader. (laughs) She is 75, presumably even more worn out. And there's no baby. So it was Sarah who brought up the subject. She said to him, Genesis 16, Abraham, did you tell me that God told you we're going to have a baby? Well, yes, he did. You sure it was God who told you that? Well, yeah, it was God who told me that. Have you been drinking something that night? No, no, I don't drink. You have me eating too much, you know, Danish blue cheese or something? No. No, it was God who spoke to me. Well, where's the baby, Mr. Abraham? She probably said, he probably said, I don't know, but maybe God didn't know how worn out you were. <laughs> she probably said, listen, maybe he didn't know how dead you are. <laughs> Whatever the problem... With the promise of God ringing in their ears for 10 years, there's no baby. So they make the classic mistake. They dedicate themselves to do the will of God. The classic mistake. And Sarah said, why didn't you have the baby so the made Hagar? Wasn't totally out of the norm in the culture. Abraham and Sarah had gone down to Egypt, actually. Uh, against the will of God, they had to deceive and lie and cheat in order to survive there. But when they came back at the end of a famine, when they came back, they brought with them a servant girl called Hagar. And by the way, if you go out of the will of God, make sure you jettison the baggage when you come home. Because they didn't. And she was conveniently in their home. And Abraham thought, well, maybe that's a good idea. And so Hagar conceived his son, his child was born as a son they called him Ishmael everyone must have been thrilled a bit he was 86 now at last my own little son I imagine him holding him and doing what old men do with little babies and this kind of thing throw him up and catch hope or you catch him God I'm so sorry I didn't think of Hagar before you know I, I thought it was Sarah, but of course it can't be. Her womb's as good as dead, and she's worn out. And God said nothing for 13 years. After 13 years, Abraham was 95 years of, 99 years of age. And God spoke to him again said, Abraham, yes? Remember I talked to you a while ago? Yeah? I told you your wife would give birth to a son? Yes? Well, this time next uh, next year, your wife will give birth to a son. Beg your pardon? This time next year, your wife will give birth to a son, I promised you. But we've already got him. He's 13 years of age now. He's called Ishmael. He's, he's out there playing football. And it says in Genesis 21 that Sarah gave birth on the very day... God had said. So now Abraham has two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. Do you remember the occasion when God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice? I Mount Moriah. Remember that occasion? Have you ever noticed the deliberate mistake God made in Genesis 22, and verse 1, when God said to Abraham, God said in verse 2 of Genesis 22, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Did you notice the deliberate mistake? you notice it? Take your son, your only son. Abraham might have said, "Uh, excuse me, God, you just uh, made a mistake then. Isaac is not my only son. I have two sons. Ishmael is my son too. Did God know that? Of course God knew that. So why did God call Isaac Abraham's only son? Galatians chapter 4 tells us. Because Galatians 4 verse 22 says, It is written that Abraham had two sons. One by the slave woman. That's Hagar of course. The other by the free woman. Which was Sarah. Sarah. So Ishmael and Isaac. Now it says this. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. In other words, when Ishmael was born, and the local gossips got together, you know, down the road and said, hey, I hear there's a baby in Abraham's household. Really? Wow. Who's the mother? Hagar. Oh, you mean the maid? Yeah. You mean Abraham and the maid? Yeah. Juicy bit of gossip. But it works, old man, young woman, it works. In other words, when Ishmael was born, it was in the ordinary way, in the sense, it was completely explicable. But he says, his son by the free woman, which is Isaac by Sarah, was born as a result of a promise. So when the local gossips got together and said, hey, I hear there's another baby in Abraham's household. Really? Yeah. Who's the mother this time? Sarah, beg your pardon? No, no, not the grandmother. Who's the mother? Sarah, but she's 90. I know. What's the explanation? God did something. And you see, if you read this in Galatians, the context in Galatians, Ishmael is a picture of what is called the flesh. Now the flesh is not running off with your neighbor's wife and pilfering money. The flesh is a man doing for God what only God could do through him. It's a man dedicating himself to do the will of God. And by the way, never dedicate yourself to do the will of God. Dedicate yourself to a God whose will it is that he will implement it in you. And this is a classic example of that. And there's so many Christians, so many of us, who become stressed because we have never learned to rest in the sufficiency of God. Going back to the original uh, passage in Hebrews chapter three, he is saying that in the wilderness it was an eleven-day journey, but instead of depending on the God who brought them out and brought them to the Red Sea they'd seen as miraculous in dimension instead of depending on him they're now depending on their own resources their own strength and so after two years they sent some spies into Canaan and they came back, 12 of them and when they got back they said, well how, how is it in there? and they said, oh it's terrible in there because you know there's there's a number of tribes there that have got all kinds of strange names there's a tribe called the Hittites which is found very dangerous why are they called the Hittites? I don't know, maybe they hit, I don't know. As the, as the Amorites, well, who were they? Well, they just say Amorites, we don't care about you. And, and so on. And some of them are very big. In fact, they're giants in the land. And we felt like grasshoppers. We can't do this. There were two of them amongst the ten who said, You're absolutely right, we can't do this. We agree. But God will give us a land. And they said, Joshua, Caleb, don't be so spiritual, man. You've got to be practical about these things. And the ten won the day. And they turned back, spent the next 38 years, going around in circles in the wilderness. And in those 38 years, every single one of those men who had left Egypt over the age of 20 was dead before they entered Canaan 40 years later, except Joshua and except Caleb. But the reason why that story is there is because there are many who said, I've got a great testimony of how I got out of the old life. Man, you should have seen the Red Sea. Goodness me, it just opened up and all Egyptians got drowned behind us. Fantastic testimony. But now, getting up in the morning, nothing's happening. There's no movement. There's no progression. There's no accessing the land. And all the fullness of that land. A land flowing with milk and honey as it was described. Because they did not take what they knew, the truth, and combine it with faith. And mix together with faith, truth combined with faith turns that truth into experience. As opposed to into theology or theory or doctrine or objective truths that we sign up to and put as bullet points on our creeds. It becomes experience because you say, Lord, this is what I believe to be true about you and therefore this is what I'm going to trust you to be in me. Wake up every morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are totally sufficient for me today. I don't know what today is going to bring forth, but you do. But I'm going to live this day in dependence upon you. Along with that comes obedience to him. Dependence and obedience. And uh, what happens today is going to be Your business, not mine. The fruit of your working in me, not my working for you. And it becomes a life of rest. That doesn't mean a life of inactivity or passivity. But resting in the sufficiency of God. Now let me just say this in these last few minutes. You say, well, that's all very well. But I don't have enough faith. And I'm sure we've all felt that. Disciples came to Jesus one day in, John, in Luke 17 and verse 5. And they said, Lord, increase our faith. If we've been standing around listening, we would have said, wow, these disciples are being really spiritual today. Because they weren't a lot of times. It's a great question. Lord, increase our faith. But have you ever noticed Jesus' answer to that question or that request? He said to them, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. They say, increase our faith. Give us a bigger faith. Jesus, and he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. A mustard seed was the smallest known seed in the Middle East. I'm told 5,000 seeds weigh an ounce. you're asking the wrong question. You're asking for a big faith. I'm telling you that it is not the size of your faith that is important, but the object in which you put your faith. And if you put mustard seed-sized faith in God, God will work. When I was 18, I grew up in England, and I wanted to travel and do something interesting before I studied and things. And I got a job in Zimbabwe in Southern Africa... And I actually spent two years there. And I remember when I went out to Zimbabwe at the age of 18, I I went to London Seesaw Airport. The board of flight had never flown before. I was a little bit nervous because I knew sometimes these planes came down when they weren't supposed to. And I thought it would probably happen with me on it. So I was a little bit nervous. I got my boarding card, I got onto the aircraft, it was a Boeing 707, which is now pretty well out of circulation, and I had rows of three seats either side of the aisle, and mine was the middle seat on the left side of the plane. When I sat down, there was already an elderly Scottish lady sitting in the window seat next to me. And she was holding on to the armrests so tightly her knuckles were white. And we sat down, I said, hello, and she said, hello. And then she said to me, ha, 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 have you ever f- f- flown before? I said, no, I haven't. She said, neither have I. She said, I thought you hadn't. She said, are you scared? And I knew she was, so I sat up straight and said, no, it's nothing to be scared about, perfectly safe. She told me she had a daughter and a son-in-law who lived in... Zimbabwe, they had three little children. She'd never seen her grandchildren, and she was going to go out and spend a couple of months with them. And she said, if it wasn't for my grandchildren, I wouldn't risk my life doing this. (laughs) She was really nervous. Then a man came and sat on my right. He was a South African businessman, probably flown hundreds of times. He just sat down, took out a book, and began to read it. The aircraft went to the end of the runway. The engines opened up. We began to speed along. And as we sped along to lift off the ground, this lady next to me shriveled up in her seat. I was next to her holding onto the armrest, just a little bit nervous because I'd never done this before. And she was all shriveled up. And I remember thinking to myself, what a waste of a window seat because I wanted to see out. <laughs> and after a while, we leveled off. And she kind of came round and said, oh, it's not so bad. it?" And went a bit of air turbulence and down she went again. We landed in Paris an hour later, just to pick up other folks, and uh, she thought we're in Africa already. I said, no, no, this is just Paris. We've got a long way to go yet. And uh, all the way out, she was nervous and tense. I was a little bit nervous. The man on my right was totally relaxed, totally confident. If you like, the three of us, each had a different quantity of faith. The lady next to me had mustard seed-sized Faith just enough to allow herself to be persuaded there was a 51% chance of survival. <laughs> mustard seed size faith. I, in contrast to her mustard seed size faith, had, had potato size faith, a good baked potato size, style size faith. The man on my right had watermelon size faith. But the interesting thing is this. She only had mustard seed size faith. I had potato size faith. He had watermelon size faith. But you may not believe this, but it's true. We all arrived in Harare in Zimbabwe at the same time. (laughs) Man with the big faith didn't get there first. And I came in second. She came in six hours behind me. We all got there at the same moment for the simple reason. It was not the quantity of our faith. It was the issue. It was the object in which we put our faith. So when these disciples say, Lord, increase our faith, the answer of Jesus is to say, you do not understand the nature of faith. If this is what you think it is, you go into a dark room somewhere and try to work it up. (laughs) No, it's simply calculated whether it's a lot or a little, mustard seed or watermelon size, saying, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust you in this situation, even though it scares me silly, because I only have mustard seed size faith. I'm going to trust you. And you'll get there on time. Because he'll work. Now, having said that, there is, of course, a decided advantage in an increased faith. The advantage was this. The man on my right was totally relaxed. Ate three good meals. Had a sleep. lady on my left, tense all the way. Ate half of one of those meals. And I won't tell you what happened to that half because it wasn't very Nice. She didn't sleep. I saw her in the parking lot actually, in Harare. I was being met and we were going to her, and she was there with her daughter and son-in-law, and they were kind of one either side of her helping her along. And I thought this poor lady's going to spend the first month in bed getting over the journey. She's exhausted. It's the side advantage of an increased faith. And that is, the more you know the object of your faith, the more relaxed you become. And you trust him. How do you get to know the object of our faith who is the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we get to know him better? Romans 10, 17 tells us how our faith grows. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That as we spend time in the word of God, through the written word of God, we get to know the living word of God. Because we do not read the Bible in order to get to know the Bible. We read the Bible in order to get to know Christ. Christ. That's why Jesus criticized the Jews for studying the Bible. In John 5.39 he said you study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But they bear witness to me and you refuse to come to me. So you study the Bible to get to know the Bible and it makes you Pharisees. You're brilliant Pharisees. You dot every I and cross every T. But that's not the purpose of the scriptures that you study. It's through the written word you come to know me. The living word. I have a Toyota Camry. When I bought it, there was with it in the little glove compartment an instruction manual. Just imagine, I took that instruction manual out and I took it into my house and I sat down and diligently diligently read it all the way through. And I underlined the bits that I liked, my favorite sections, with a highlighter. And then I joined the local Toyota Fellowship to go for an exposition of the manual every week. This week's subject, sparking plugs. Next week, we'll talk about tire pressures. Supposing I put it to music and I sing it. And I get so into it that I study Japanese in order to read the manual in the original language. So when I go to the fellowship, I can say, the Japanese for this means, and nobody else knows whether it is or not, so you can get away with all kinds of things with that. (laughs) A day will come, having read, having memorized, having underlined, having sung it, having joined the Theodore Fellowship, having studied Japanese, a day will come, I would say, I am sick and tired of this manual. Why? Because the manual has only one purpose. Not that I might know the manual, but I might know the car. And the purpose of the written word of God is that through the written word of God, we get to know the living word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that comes as we get to know him in this word. We translate what we know by faith into experience. And what we read today on Sunday becomes life on Monday. We say, Lord Jesus, this book is full of what you're going to do in me and for me and through me. I respond in obedience to what you tell me to do, but that obedience is coupled with dependence. It's combined with faith. So, Lord Jesus, it is you who's going to be the explanation for my life. Not me, the explanation for my life. It'll be you. I'm not going to be an Ishmael. I'm going to be an Isaac. Not living in the ordinary way, but living as a result of promise, of something that's supernatural, beyond being natural. It's not explicable simply in natural terms. It is you work in me. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I want to warn you be very careful. You don't have a gospel that is of no value. And the only way for that gospel to be of value in being the Christian you have become is you take the truths of it and you combine them with faith. And out of that, you learn to rest, the next person. Now, we we who believe enter that rest in his strength and his sufficiency. Does that make sense? I hope so, because I've got to stop now. (laughs) And uh, if it doesn't, we'll go home and have a cup of coffee and get over it. But if it makes sense, I hope it makes experiential sense as well. In your life and mine. Just before I, I pray, <clears throat> I was invited to bring some books, and just to mention them, uh, several books on a table somewhere out there where um, a couple, uh, Alive in Christ and Christ for Real, both express what I think is fundamental to Christian life But it's not our living for Christ, it's His living in and through us and uh, actually there's a section on living by faith and one of them as well then there's some other books and then the best one there is by my wife (laughs) The Life That Changed My Day and there's also some CD and DVD sets uh, of my wife speaking which uh, I bought some copies plus also a catalogue of other CDs, DVDs that might be available so uh, if you're interested in any of those you can pick them up as you go but let's just pray together and let's ask the Spirit of God to make what we talked about Real in our lives. Father, we thank you this morning that you're alive and you're present and you made your home within our hearts. Our bodies have become the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And thank you that you are in yourself everything we need to live the life you've called us to because he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And we want to experience you doing and working in us and help us to be men and women who trust you for those of us who have mustard seed size faith help us to take the risk of just trusting you and letting you bring about what you want to accomplish in our lives that we may grow in you and our faith will grow as it comes through the word of god we pray it in jesus name amen